I'm so happy to see many of you who came all the way to this church to see many of them. Guys, you guys did excellent. Awesome job. Thank you very much. Parents who brought all these kids here and also the guys, the little guys with the flutes. Where are they? they I see green everywhere. Stand, guys. Stand. Just for a few seconds. Stand. Look at you. They did great. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you, parents. Thank you, Church, Orange Church, for supporting Christian education, especially with Orangewood, uh, Orangewood Adventist Academy. Now, I'm really happy to introduce, uh, for, I mean, this, this introduction is not for you, parents, but for our members of the church, just in case you don't know. This gentleman here, can you just stand? Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, he is the principal for the Orangewood Adventist Academy. He is also a pastor. He is a good man. Sometimes we eat together, Peruvian food, right? Uh, and today he is the one who is going to be preaching. How are you, Pastor? I'm doing fine, thank you. Good. He's going to be preaching, and the name of the sermon is The Tale of Two Fathers. So now, with you, Pastor Ruben Escalante. Thank you, Pastor. I'm... Uh... I'm, I'm delighted to be here again. I think it's been it's been a while since I've been here, but uh, probably like coming home. Uh, I feel very much at home at this church. So thank you for being so uh, hospitable and kind and friendly. Uh, Pastor Marufo actually was at our school yesterday speaking to our high school students. It was quite an event. Uh, they were introduced for the first time to Pastor Marufo and his very unique preaching style. Uh, comes with sound effects and all sorts of things. It was an interesting morning. Um, but those who have been here on other occasions when I've been here know that I feel very uncomfortable, having grown up with three older brothers, to have people behind me at any time. It makes me extremely nervous. I don't know what they're doing back there. I don't know if they're making faces or falling asleep or throwing things. I don't know. So I, I know um, uh, the choral director is so much very much interested in them staying there. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's the two rows here in the front. I think there's plenty of room for them. So if you make sure they actually get there, I will, please. No, I'm very, very worried. So please, please, if you would follow your director to those front two rows where I can actually keep my eyes on you, thank you so much. <clears throat> for those of you who don't know Mr. Lurbear, other than just the, uh, the choral director today, he is, uh, I would place him somewhere in the category of a Dante Marufo. He is, um, he has equal energy at times. And you're wondering if he's going to actually come out of his skin. Uh, but that's just the way he is. And he needs that type of energy to lead this. There are two rows, you understand. Uh, there are two rows. Okay, well, you know your comfort level. Good morning, church. Uh, I am going to make an unabashed, uh, bold-faced commercial this morning. Some of you perhaps know by now that on Monday we have an incredibly important meeting at Orangewood Adventist Academy. It is our, it's, been, it's the first constituency, actually the second constituency since I've been here. But this one pales all those previous. It's one of those 50-year 50, 50 constituencies. Because um, on Monday we will, we will be presenting the strategic plans uh, for rebranding, for marketing, for building, just the vision of Orangewood Adventist Academy, and by extension, education in Orange County. 
We are at a crossroads and we are convinced that we either grow, dream, and build, or we die. Uh, the church to be sedentary. The church cannot rest on its laurels or on its history. We need to continue moving. So, thank you. So, let me invite you, 7 o'clock Monday, February 26, 2007, in our auditorium. I know some of you have perhaps been asked specifically, but everyone is invited. We would like everyone to share in the vision. And let me guarantee you, we will not take up an offering. We will not ask you for money. We want you to share the vision. Because if you don't share the vision of educating the next generation, we have no next generation. We have to invest in our young people. Uh, from preschool through high school and beyond. Um, anyway, that's my commercial. We hope you're there. Uh, a lot is at stake. Let me invite you just to bow your heads with me before we continue. Loving God, this is all about you. Our worship, our singing, our very being here is because of you. So come as you've promised and descend on us. Let us sense your presence and let us leave having been fed by your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The tale of two fathers. Being a principal has taught me some uh, very interesting lessons about life, uh, some valuable lessons, other than you can't make everybody happy. That I learned very early in my experience as a principal at Orangewood. But it's more like uh, I learned that being a principal, anybody here play golf other than Louis Burgos that I know plays golf? We have a small golfer here. Not many golfers here, so perhaps you're not going to be able to relate to what I'm going to say. Being a principal is a lot like playing golf. And I can't claim that I play golf. I occasionally pick up a club and I try to hit that little white ball. I'm not sure. Now, Louis is a golfer. When he hits the ball, it goes long. Not always straight, but it always goes long. And he is an amazing golfer. I, on the other hand, am what you call in the vernacular a, uh, a duffer. I, uh, I hit the ball. And I keep hitting the ball as many times as it takes me to get it to where it needs to be. Uh, So that's something about being a principal. You learn that you've got to keep at it. You can't stop. You may not always hit it straight or long. You may not always put it where you want it. But you've got to keep hitting. You've got to keep trying. You've got to keep moving. You've got to keep doing what you do. Sometimes it's aggravating. Uh, When I was a pastor back in Santa Maria, California, early in my ministry... One of my elders said, uh, Pastor Escalante, you work too much. You need something that's going to relax you. I will never forgive him for introducing me to the game of golf. Because golf doesn't always relax you. It aggravates you. It humbles you. It frustrates you. But you keep coming back because it, it may give you much aggravation that makes you wonder, why do I do this to myself? But golf also provides you enough to keep bringing you back. Enough of those moments where, where you do something incredible, where you actually hit the ball like Tiger, and not like in the woods like Tiger, uh, like Tiger's roam in the woods. That's a little humor, I'm sorry. Um, where you hit the ball and it actually does something amazing. Have I ever told you about my hole-in-one? No? I haven't told anybody about my hole-in-one. I haven't hit a hole-in-one. I keep coming back hoping that someday... I will hit a hole-in-one. I've come close. I've hit the green a few times. That's, that's, that's as close to a hole-in-one. 
As a principle, you learn that you, you know a lot, but you don't know everything. You solve a lot of problems, but you can't solve everything. Being a principal has taught me those things. Um, you do a lot, but you can't do everything. Very humbling. Incredibly powerless at times and humbled by what you have to do. But you keep doing it, just like in golf. So why am I saying these things? Because it made me wonder as I was preparing for the sermon today, what must it be if I, being powerless, I know my limits, I've left my infallibility behind many, many years ago. What, would it, what must it be to be God? Think about that for a couple seconds. Let me let you think about that for a couple seconds. What must it be like to be God? I mean, he can do everything. He knows everything. He is, in many ways, everywhere. What must it be, what must it be like to be God, in charge of everything. We're his children. He is like the principal of the school of the world. And we are his students. Does he get aggravated? Does he get frustrated? What keeps him coming back? What keeps him signing on to another contract? Because he hasn't resigned. And we haven't asked him to leave. So what brings him back? We, not just they, we are all his students. Some days, I had a student in my office the other day. We will call him Jerry Maya. How's that? His name is Jerry Maya. For those who are from uh, Orangewood, you know who I'm talking about. Jerry Maya was in my office, and I had to bring him in because Jerry Maya is determined to make my life a living uh, tribulation period. It is amazing. There is not one day, and I am obviously serious. I am not kidding. There is not one day where I will not at least call his name, Jeremiah, at least once. It will either be, Jeremiah, why are your pants down here? Bring them up. Where's your belt, Jeremiah? Tuck in your shirt, Jeremiah. Settle down, Jeremiah. Go back to your class. What are you doing in the hall, Jeremiah? Did, I, did you say what I think you said, Jeremiah? Those sorts of things, constantly, constantly talking to Jeremiah. And I've invested a lot in Jeremiah. Many times he's come close to going off the precipice of our institution, but I keep bringing him back and saying, Jeremiah, you're going to graduate here. I'm going to give you a diploma when you finally graduate. In as many years as it takes you to graduate, you are going to graduate. But sometimes I have to bring him into my office and say, Jeremiah, you've got to tell me, are you in or are you out? I got your back, but do you want to be here? I'll say, just say the word. Say, yes, I want to be here. I want to be here. Because every time he sees me, he says, and he's been saying this for as long as he's been at Orangewood Academy, Mr. E, I'm not coming back next year. I'm, I'm out of here. And then he smiles. I'm out of here. And he keeps coming back. I'm out of here next year. I'm not coming back. I hate the rules. Jerry, Jerry, you don't really mean that, Jeremiah. Did I say Jerry? I don't know. I didn't mean to say that. Jeremiah, do you mean, do you mean it? Do you mean it? Come to my office. Let's sit down. Let's talk. Do you want to be here? So I said, this is it. I need to know, Jeremiah. You want to be here or don't you want to be here? And he said, Mr. E, yes and no. He couldn't leave well enough alone. He had to say yes and no. So I had to explain. And he 
in his own way, explain why yes and why no. Because sometimes your teachers are so nice and so giving and so kind. And then sometimes they just come down on me all the time. Are you talking about me, Jerry, my eyes said. And he says, yes, Mr. You. You and other teachers, too. You guys sometimes are nice and sometimes you're mean. And I said, you mean sometimes we have to tell you what to do? And sometimes we're frustrated and sometimes we don't know? Well, that's just part of being what we do. We've got to keep trying because if we don't try, we've given up on you. And I'm not going to give up on you, Jeremiah. That's just a what. How must it be if I just got one Jeremiah? God has billions of Jeremiah's. We are all Jeremiah's. Think about it. What must it be like for God to keep coming back and back and back? Well, for that, I've got to tell you a story. I love telling stories, if you haven't discovered that in the past when I've been here. I love telling stories. The story will not sound too unfamiliar, but the ending will surprise you. I almost guarantee it. I don't guarantee things anymore. I guarantee it. I don't guarantee them anymore. Let me tell you a story. Just one. It's a story about a father, a story about a son. Very unique, right? You know the story. Son comes to dad and says, give me everything you got. At least the part that's mine. And the father does. And the father says, here it is. Take what is yours. And the son leaves to a distant land. Are you with me? You've heard the story, haven't you? Well, then, any time a son takes what is his and goes off to a distant land, you know the setup is there for things to go wrong. And as it so happened, things went terribly wrong when this young man was off at a distant land. He used up all his treasure in prodigal living. And by prodigal living, I mean he, he was just hanging around the wrong, the wrong crowd. That happens, guys. When you hang around the wrong crowd, bad things happen. I've known that from experience, and I've learned it again as I've spent X number of years in ministry and and teaching and education. Bad things happen when you hang around the bad crowd. When I was a child, my mom would always filter all my friends. Never let me hang around with anyone who was of the wrong uh, descendancy or the wrong surname or the wrong religion or the wrong neighborhood. But we lived in the wrong neighborhood, so she couldn't protect me all the time. But she tried. She tried, and it was very, very, very cloistered in our home as best she could protect us from the influences of the people that lived around us. I sometimes laugh with my kids, people whose names like, like pirate and, and uh, serpent and viper and the, and the spider, and those were the girls in my neighborhood. They were, it was a tough neighborhood. <laughs> she was very concerned about my well-being and always filtered people, never, never gave us the phone and always would you know, do things to protect us. But in this case, the father did not protect his son. Obviously, he went. He, he told he could have followed him, but he let him go. And he ended up hanging around the wrong type of people. Bad things happened. You know the story. Things got really bad. He used up all his money on low lives and, and uh, people, uh, women of ill repute, people who were in public relations and things of that nature. His friends turned on him. It was bad. It was bad. It was bad. He rolls around in the muck and mire. He sinks as low as a man can get. Lives like a pig surrounded by pigs. You know the story, right? You following me? Not a friend in the world. The pigs, but they weren't his friends. 
you expected that turn because you know the story. But now comes the unexpected turn. And maybe you'll follow, maybe you won't, but at the end you'll understand why I'm doing it. Because the story takes an unexpected turn. Because as you know, this young man who went off to distant lands knew who his father, he never forgot who his father was. He knew who his father was. He probably corresponded with his father. We don't know. We're not sure at this stage, at least not for the sake of where I'm going with the story. He knew that his father loved him, but he still lived with pigs. Didn't change. In this story, however, he chooses not to return yet. He continues to live with the pigs. Until as the story goes, the pigs turn on him. He sticks it out with the dredges of society. He stays living in this in this pigsty longer than any human could have. An unexpected twist of events, the pig owner accuses him of a crime. And the pig owner also has sons who whip up some lies about the stranger. The townspeople form a mob intent to inflict punishment on this pig dweller. He is tried of convic- and convicted of living like a pig, sentenced to death based on swine testimony. Are you still with me? Well, the story gets crazier, believe it or not. If it wasn't bad enough that the son of the farmer and the farmer and the townspeople and the pigs themselves have turned on you and you've been condemned to some fate you're not aware of yet, it gets crazier. Because you see, he still knows who his father is. He still knows who his father is. And he knows that his father is able to rescue him. He knows he is able. He knows he can. And now he finally, longing for some solace, longing for some consolation, longing for just a warm meal, longing for a friendly voice, he sends an urgent message to his father. And he says, will you get me out of this? Notice he didn't ask, can you get me out of this? He says, will you? Because he knows he can. And you would expect at this point, if you're following the story, that the father would obviously come and rescue him. Because that's the way the story is supposed to go. After all, I'm a father. And if my kids called me to help, I'd go. I've traveled. I've done things that I would not otherwise have done to help my kids. Because they're my kids. The flesh of my flesh and is annoying and hard and difficult and disobedient and whatever it is that they do to aggravate your life. They're your children. My son, Reuben, who I never thought would survive school, is now serving as a lawyer in Orange County. Who can figure? Maybe he honed all those arguing skills into a career. I don't know how it happened, but he's there serving. When he was growing up, thought he had a sense of humor. Had no sense of humor at all. He would say jokes that he'd make up in his mind. He thought they were funny. And he'd always come to me and try them out. But you know what? As unfunny as he is, you come to my campus sometime and ask what mystery humor is. They will tell you. Mystery Mystery humor is my type of humor. And these kids don't think it's funny at all. Don't think it's funny. I think it's very clever. But they don't agree. 
Well, my son thought he was very clever. He came one day and says, Daddy, I got a joke. Did you make this up, Reuben? Yes, I did. Please tell me. He says, Daddy, why did the chicken cross the road? Notice he didn't say, why didn't the chicken cross the road? He says, why did he cross the road? I don't know. Okay, well, since you don't know that, why didn't he cross the road? That was half his joke. It wasn't funny, you know, didn't laugh. Okay, son, since I don't know why he crossed the road, why didn't the chicken cross the road? Well, it's obvious, Dad, because he was chicken. (laughs) Thank you for the courtesy laugh. That was pretty much what I did, too. Not funny, but he is me. He's a reflection of me. My, My daughter, Amanda, love her to death. Reflection of me. Her culinary skills are inherited from me. None at all. All the abilities to do all the things that I imagined my young daughter would do as she was growing up as a young lady. No, weren't there. Weren't there. I thought she'd be making me tortillas by the time she was 10. She can't even warm up a tortilla. Pre-made. Can't do it. Love her to death. She inherited my ministerial genes. She's up being a youth pastor in Placerville. She got it. My son's a lawyer. My daughter's a youth pastor. Lord knows. She's a piece of me. When she gets up to speak, when she's preached her three sermons up there, I fly up to Placerville to listen to her speak. Oh, it just warms my heart. To... She's a piece of me. You understand? I don't mind that she can't cook worth a licking. It doesn't mind to me. She's my daughter. She's a piece of me. It doesn't, doesn't bother me that Reuben has no sense of humor at all, even now as he's in his mid-20s. He's my son. And my youngest son... Don't get me started. You understand? These are my kids. I love them and I will defend them to death because they're mine. That's the way the story's supposed to go. Send the message to dad. Dad, I need help. No response. But he believes in his mind his dad can. Sends another. The trial continues. Another telegram. No response. The sentencing leads to the green mile. You know the green mile that leads you to your place of death. No response from the father. No telegram. No emissary. Nobody comes back. Nobody responds. He stripped down the townspeople snicker. He is strapped down. Townspeople laugh. His skin is punctured. The townspeople mock. And in the throes of death, he cries out, Dad, where are you? Where are you? And no dad. Where's dad? Dad is silent. Dad is absent. Dad is gone. Dad never comes. And in this story, the young prodigal dies. Hey, hey, wait a minute. That's not the way the story's supposed to end. The story I know, the son... He's wrapped by the father's arms. He is rescued and dressed up. And there's a party because he comes back. This one doesn't come back. He dies. And the father doesn't answer. No rescue. No rescue party. No Rambo. Nobody comes. He is left to die. That's not the way it's supposed to go. Well, I think you made some assumptions. You are assuming that I am in Luke chapter 15. You must have your stories confused. 
The story I am drawing from is found in Philippians chapter 2. The prodigal son who comes back and is received by his waiting father is you, is me. That's the one that gets rescued back. We are the sheep that went astray, according to Isaiah 53. The way my mother used to call us, chivos descarriados, that's what she used to call us. Ask someone to translate that for you. Goats that have wandered off. That's what she called us. There were four goats, always wandering off. Al monte siempre, she said, and that's not al monte. We go off to the hills, she said. That's what we are. We are all chivos descarriados. We are all sheep who have gone astray. We're the ones that were brought back into the Father's favor. We are the ones of whom Paul says we are not forsaken. I'm not talking about that one. We are the ones for which nothing will separate us from the love of God. That's Romans 8. We are the ones. Doesn't matter where we go, God will find us. God is there. Not my prodigal. We are the ones which God will never in no wise, according to the King James, never cast you out. That's John 6, 37. That's the prodigal that comes back. That's the prodigal that is wrapped up in the cloak of the father. That's the happy ending, the party and the music. You know, older, spoiled brother notwithstanding. There was a party that night. Not just a little chicken, not just a little sheep. This was the fatted cow that was wrapped up and prepared for dinner. No, the prodigal son who dies a lonely death at the hands of pigs, he sought to save. That's the other brother. The other story. Not the one who stayed home. It's not the same story. But you can make it be the same story with a few twists. Because this older brother chose not to stay home. He chose to go. And quite honestly, this is the one that the father gave. He gave the son. He's the one who left searching for the younger brother or the younger sister. He's the one of whom it speaks in John 3.16 that God so loved the little brother called earth, you and me, that he gave his only unique, precious son. He's the one who was sacrificed to save the wayward sibling. That's you. That's me. He's the one of whom in Romans 8, remember that nothing will separate us? In that same chapter, it's where it speaks of him that God did not spare his own son. He did not spare him. He was absent. He was silent. He did not listen. When his son cried out, where are you? God did not answer. He could have. He didn't. Why didn't he? Because of you. Because of me. The one who cried out, Mark 15, that's the prodigal. Why do I call him the prodigal? Philippians 2. He emptied himself. 2 Corinthians 5 says, He became sin for us. He became all that we are so that we could become one with him. It's not that he just took upon our sins. He became sin. He lived in the worst that we have to offer, hung out with the worst people, rolled around in the muck and mire of this world longer than anybody should have in his position. But he did it. Because had he not, there would not have been place for me. Because he rolled in the muck. I was in the muck. And he made his place with me. And he rescued me. 
and he saved me. That is the plan of salvation. He became a prodigal. He took the treasures of heaven with him. And where do you think he spent them? He spent them on wayward children, on people of ill repute. People who do, don't do the things they're supposed to. People who don't go where they're supposed to. People who don't act the way they're supposed to. People who are chivos descarriados, wayward sheep. That's where he went. That's where he came. That's where he stayed. That is God. That is the core of the good news. But that's crazy. That is crazy. Why would he do that? Why would God choose to sign up his contract over and over? You realize Tommy Lasorda coached the, uh, the uh, LA Dodgers for 20-some-odd years. One-year contracts every year, signing on and on again until he got canceled. That doesn't apply here. But God continues to renew his contract. He doesn't have to. He does. Because there is a connection between Divinity and humanity that can not be broken. It is in the prodigal who went and became humanity and invested his divinity and emptied himself out and became one of us. Hebrews 12, 2. I love this text because it answers the question, why? This is ludicrous. This is crazy. This is insane. Hebrews 12, 2 says, for the joy that lay before him, he did it. What's the joy? What's the joy? That's you. That's me. He did it for you, for me. That's why. 1 Corinthians 5, 21, you know what it says, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's why he did it, to save you, to save me. And in the end, and in the end, because of the prodigal in chapter 2 of Philippians, chapter 15 of Luke becomes reality. Because he emptied himself, became his servant, and became obedient to death. Just everything laid out. Because of that, the other prodigal could come home and be rescued and embraced and saved and cloaked in the righteousness of God. He is exalted, but you know what? In his exaltation, we are exalted because we are called children of God. Think about that. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, the, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon you that you should be called what? Children of God. Now you are children of God. Not when you behave. Now you are children of God. Not when you act the way you're supposed to. No, now. How, do I, how can I say that? Well, read verse 2 and 3. It says, Now we are not what we will be. And what we will be, we will be what we will be. When he comes, that's a loose translation. Now it has not been revealed what we will be. But when he comes, we will be like him because we will know him as he is. But the fact that now we are not all that we will be does not change the fact that we are now children of God. That's the love the Father bestowed upon us. That's that prodigal coming and becoming. Not walking with the prodigal, not hugging the prodigal. Becoming the prodigal of heaven and coming to live and die and be abandoned for us. We are adopted into the family, children of God. He was wrapped in royal clothing, that's us, while the older brother was stripped of his clothing. We are embraced by the father, while the brother was not at the moment where he most needed his father. 
And therein lies the mystery of the plan of salvation, the foolishness of the cross, the power unto salvation for all who believe. In the immortal words, consider. We once were lost, but now we're found. We were blind, but now we see. May God bless you. Let's bow our heads and pray. God Almighty, it's not anything that we've done. Nothing. The best we can do is is nothing. But that means you are everything. You are our salvation. You are the way, the truth, the life. You are the way back to the Father. In God, today, we thank you for the gift. Thank you that you, in Christ Jesus, became us so that we might become one with you in Christ Jesus also. Forgive us today and reconnect us and remind us again how much, how broad, how wide, how vast your love is for us, beyond what we can comprehend today or forever. But today, let us walk humbly. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.